The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. So we're in Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 20. Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. So let me go ahead and give you the main point and then a basic explanation before we read the text. The main point of this text is a Christ-centered concern for those in error involves truth and love. So this text is speaking to what you do when you have a serious spiritual concern for someone who appears to be turning from the gospel. So with that in your mind, I pray you'll read the text in that way. So I invite you to stand as I read Galatians 4 verse 8. Formerly, you did not know God. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods, but rather, but now you have come to know God or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I am present with you. My little children, whom I again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. Let's pray. Lord, we need help in understanding this text and Lord, you know us, you know where we live, you know the time we live, you know that we're going to need desperately your help, Holy Spirit, to apply this text. Lead us now into all truth, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this text speaks to when you have a serious spiritual concern for someone who appears to be turning from the the gospel. Someone who is expressing and giving evidence of eternal consequences that would result in a grave concern on your behalf. So I chose this title on purpose. This is not just you're concerned about somebody. It's that the concern you have has grave consequences. So what this text is not, and hear this carefully, this is not a text on confronting someone who has sinned against you. The Bible addresses that in other places. That's not the point of this text. The point of this text is how Paul addressed the Galatians of whom 
he had a grave concern for. Read verse 11 with me. I am afraid that I have labored over you in vain. Verse 20. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Luther said of this section of Galatians, these words breathe Paul's tears. Paul's in anguish. He's deeply concerned. So what I wanna do is watch what Paul did and apply it to us. So you really could argue this is an entire so what sermon. This is an application sermon. How do you approach someone whom you have a grave concern for? First, a grave concern must be addressed directly and biblically. Remind them first of who we are apart from Christ. So this is a gospel appeal. You're appealing to the unbeliever to turn to Christ alone. You're appealing to the person who claims to be a believer to repent of this false way that they're approaching the gospel. Verse eight says, formally, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So what he's talking about here is idolatry. That idolatry equals slavery. They were enslaved to false gods. Now, you gotta ask the question, what is the reason for slavery to false gods? The answer is in the beginning of the verse, because you don't know God. When a person who does not know God, they are enslaved easily and quickly to idols. You've heard me say this before, if you've been around for a while. Anything can be an idol, everything has been an idol. The author of that, Tim Keller, wrote about verse eight, quote, the basic principle of the world is that we need to save ourselves. We will worship what we think we need to fulfill ourselves to give us life. Paul is saying that any basic thing, money, sex, mountains, and so on, can be worshiped. Anything can be treated as a God and become the basis of your religion. Whatever it is that we worship, that is which we are enslaved to. So he says, you were enslaved to those who are by nature not gods. Now folks, we can look at other religions and we can quickly say uh, that's, that's an enslavement. The reason Muslims are so adamant about practicing Ramadan, they believe during the month of Ramadan that heaven is opened and hell is closed. So whatever they do then ascends into heaven. It wins them favor with God. So that's why they're adamant in how they very legally approach Ramadan. Hinduism, which is very multifaceted, has a day, Kumela, where millions upon millions of Hindus will rush into the Ganges River on one particular day because they believe on that day the Ganges River will wash away their sins. And we can look at those things and say, well, that's clear idolatry, that's clear false religion. But folks, we subtly get sucked into things. Now, I almost hesitate to use this illustration, 
I'm going from culture, but it's sadly the culture has moved into the church, okay? So this is, we live in a secular society now. So we don't have people going to the Ganges River to, to wash in the river to wash away their sins. But we have become fundamentally religious about our health and our food. Where you gotta do certain things and you gotta eat certain things. If you don't eat certain things and you don't take care of your body certain things in certain ways, then there's something wrong with you. Now, folks, we gotta be careful as Christians here. I know the Bible says the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and, and there are clear implications of taking care of yourself, but it also says in Romans chapter 14 that we don't need to be judging each other whether we eat meat or vegetables. We don't bring the world's mentality into the church and create and treat it as if it's salvific. Meaning that if you do these things, you save yourself. Or if you don't do these things, I judge you and treat you as if you're less than a person. I could have picked hundreds of examples. Here's the point of 1 Thessalonians 1.9 and what Paul is getting to in Galatians. He says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had of you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So what's true of a Christian is we are no longer enslaved to idols. We have turned from them to serve the living and true God. So we remind people of who they were apart from Christ and we remind people for who they are in Christ. But now you've come to know God rather or rather to be known by God. Now this is the context of Galatians 4. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So we are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, here's the core issue. When he says, but now that you've come to know God, or rather, or he says a better way to say it or to think about it is not that you've come to know God. Here's the best way to think about it. God knows you. That God knows you through Christ. That he has sent his son to redeem you, to purchase you. And when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, here's what the Bible's saying. You're no longer slaves. You're now sons. So here's what Paul's saying. Why are you acting like slaves? Why are you going back to these forms of idolatry? So, reminds them who they are in Christ, then he calls them to repentance. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? He's saying, do you want to be slaves again? Is this really what you want? They say, well, what are we doing, Paul? He answers, verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years, explanation point. Now get this, this is huge here. The Judaizers want them to adopt Jewish law in order to, they say, okay, you, yeah, you need to believe in Jesus, but if you really want to be saved, you got to follow Jewish law. So here's one of the parts of following Jewish law. You got to keep the Sabbath. 
You've got to keep all these holy days. Now, Paul here is making an application. If you're not reading closely, you miss it. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that when you come to faith in Christ, if you go back into the law and you treat the law as if that can save you, even though it's in the Bible, even though it is a part of the Old Testament, if you go back and treat the Old Testament as if you keep the law and can save yourself, you're acting like a pagan. See, I don't know if I agree with that. Well, it says, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? And the issue at Galatia is not that they were washing in the river Ganges. The issue in Galatia was they were keeping holy days and circumcision as if that could save them. And he says, you're acting like pagans. Repent. Last, he expresses grave concern. And Paul says it this way to the Galatians. I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. And let's talk about what this does not mean. I don't think Paul, I know Paul does not mean I've wasted my time with you. Don't ever say that. Don't ever say that to somebody whom you've been ministering to. Don't ever say that to a child as if, as if your time with them has been wasted some way. Further, I, even though Paul uses the personal pronoun that I am afraid I, I have labored over you in vain. If you read the entire context, Paul's not being personal here. He's not saying you're hurting my feelings, that my feelings are hurt because of what you're doing. What he is expressing here is a concern over their salvation. Now go back to chapter one and let's see the issue. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ, add to it. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you, let him be accursed. And we have said before, so we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let them be accursed. Now, I would encourage you, if you weren't around when I preached the first sermon out of Galatians, you'd go back and listen to it in its fullness and understand the core issue here. But let's follow the logic. Paul's saying if somebody's preaching a gospel country, a distorted gospel, they're adding to the gospel, then let them be anathema, eternally, spiritually separated from God. Now, follow the logic. If someone preaching a false gospel is to be anathema, as you come to chapter four and Paul expresses his grave concern for them, I'm, I fear I may have labored over you in vain. Here's what he's saying. If you embrace this false teaching that re results in anathema, then you are anathema. Now I can hear it. I can hear it reverberating without you saying it. Well, that's judgmental. So friends, let me ask you a question. Are we gonna be so afraid of the 21st century's inability to speak the truth that we're gonna watch our friends and our loved ones plummet into hell? Thank God for men like Paul who will speak the truth who will say to these people, I'm afraid for you. Now, this is stern on one level, but when you keep going now, you, you see Paul appeal 
So what, what starts out as a sharp reproof is followed now by a tender, urgent, personal appeal. Led Hendrickson to say, the following paragraph is one of the most gripping in all of Paul's epistles. So it leads me to my second major point, that a grave concern must be handled graciously and earnestly. First, we should appeal to the relationship shared in Christ. And this assumes a personal relationship. It's hard to express a grave concern otherwise. It's not impossible. I've had to do it, but it's difficult. Paul here shares a, a personal relationship with the, with the Galatian believers. And he says, brothers, this would, this would be a term that means brothers and sisters, those who are part of this church. Brothers, I entreat you. I plead with you. I plead with you to become as I am. What does that mean? Paul is saying that by God's marvelous grace, that he has set aside, that he has turned away from all self-righteousness. Any attempt on his part to try to please God. He has come to Christ alone by faith alone. And he's saying to the Galatians, become like me. Use the words of the hymn. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Quit, quit trying to add to. Further, he means, in the context of his life and ministry, that if they become like Paul, then it's going to result in suffering and resistance from the false teachers. In other words, become like me and stand up to this. Quit rolling over to it. Now he uses a personal illustration in this text. He says, For I also have become like you, as you are, and you did me no wrong. You know it because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. So the reason Paul ends up in Galatians is some kind of physical sickness led him there. Now, this wasn't just any ordinary sickness. There's been lots of speculation as to what this is. Let me just say clearly, it's not the point of the text. So when you're doing Bible study, don't get launched off into something that's not the point of the text. Trying to figure out what was wrong with Paul is not the point here. But it was so serious that it says it was a trial to you. So it was either disfiguring him or he smelled horrible. One of those things was true. It was completely obvious he was sick and it was difficult to be around. He says, but you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me, key word here, as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Paul never tried to get people to treat him like he was something other than a man. Acts chapter 14, he rebukes the crowd who wanna make an offering for him and it ends up getting him stoned. What Paul's saying is here, you received me as if I was from God. Just as angels are from God and Christ is from God, you received me as a messenger of God to you. Even though I was sick and either I looked awful or I smelled terrible, you still knew when I was with you that God had sent me. 
and you were good to me. He said, what has become of your blessedness? For I testify, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me, which has caused some people to say, something must have been wrong with Paul's eyes. Maybe, I don't know. Whether it is or not, it's, it's a strong illustration to say these people were willing at this moment to do anything for Paul. So as he unfolds this appeal to their relationship, this past relationship, he then moves to appeal to the truth. He says, have I then, so we, we, we shared this moment where we had love for each other. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I am present with you. So Paul has become the enemy to at least some in Galatia, definitely to the Judaizers. Why? He's become their enemy because he tells the truth. In Ephesians 4.15, it says this. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up every way into him who is the head into Christ. So for people to grow in their faith, there has to be truth spoken and not just truth. It must be truth spoken in love. Now, brothers and sisters, this is difficult for us in the 21st century. I think it's always been difficult. I think this text speaks to the difficulty of it. But in the 21st century, it has become very difficult because here's the mantra. My truth is my truth and your truth is your truth and you keep your truth to you and I'll keep my truth to you. Folks, that's not Christian. That's not biblical. We speak the truth, but we don't speak the truth mad. We speak the truth in love with brokenness over the individual. Now he offers a warning here. This is so insightful. Verse 17, he speaks to the tactics of the Judaizers. He says, they make much of you. In other words, they act as if they're deeply concerned about you personally. They, they give a lot of attention to you. And this is not a bad thing to give attention to someone. Good parents are deeply concerned about their children. However, when you show deep concern with a wrong motive, it's deadly. Now hear me on this, because we all gotta be paying attention to it. It's one of the reasons you have elders, shepherds, who protect the flock. At any given time today, there are false teachers here. They're trying to weasel their way in. And here's what they really want. They want people to like them. And here's how false teachers operate. They isolate and separate people off. They separate them off to themselves and they make much of them. Creating a great love for them, a great loyalty to them, they shut you out that you make, make much of them. You see, what's going on in the heart of this person is a person who needs to be needed and not thought a lot of. Now, folks, let's just be honest. We all need to check our motives here. Why am I a pastor? Why are you a growth group leader? Why are you a student ministry worker? What's your real motive? What's going on inside of you? Verse 18, he says, 
It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I am present with you. So let's be careful here. When you really care about somebody spiritually, you show it. And that's a good thing. So I'm not saying in this illustration I just used, and Paul makes sure he's being clear, that we're not these detached people who work at people, with people at arm's length. We are people who are intimately involved with each other for the right motive. Now, what's the motive? Next point. We appeal to a Christ-centered desire for the individual. He says, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Here's what he's saying, that the reality of their birth in Christ, the rebirth, will be evident when Christ takes shape in them. When they reach a stage of spiritual maturity, when it is clear and evident that they will not turn away from Christ. So Paul is not satisfied simply that Christ dwells in them, or as 21st century extra biblical language, it's not in the Bible, that Christ is in your heart. We're not just, we're not just content that Christ dwells in you. What we long to see is Christ formed in you, that we are transformed in the image of Christ until Christ takes shape in you. Now, ladies, this illustration is given by a single man who never married. And I'm thinking, how can he do this? Here's the answer I have. Because we didn't have antiseptic hospital rooms where your wife went into and gave birth while you sat outside and had no idea what happened. Women gave birth in the next hut over and everybody heard it. Okay? Everybody knew what it was like when babies were born. I'm treading out on thin ice here with this illustration, but it's in the Bible and we're going to use it. Here's what Paul's saying. I'm not sure if you're going to be born or not. This baby, this baby won't come. This woman's in childbirth, but the baby won't come. She's in anguish. Ladies, if anybody can get this illustration, you can't. He's saying spiritually for you, I'm in such anguish. I want to see Christ formed in you. I want to see you come to be what you claim to be. Individuals need to know that, that we, are, we are deeply concerned for them spiritually. Last principle. We need to appeal in person if at all possible. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I'm perplexed about you. I'm gonna say this strong with deep conviction and a little bit of harshness. Don't express your concern with somebody on Facebook. That's ungodly. What Paul's saying here is I gotta write you a letter and thank God he wrote the letter because now we can read the letter and study the letter. Paul's saying, here's what would be better is if I was with you face to face, I could see you and you could see me and we could hear each other and we could really get to the bottom of what is happening here. So when you're gonna express a concern, a deep concern with somebody, you need to do it face to face and you need to be prepared for this. It's another quote from Tim Keller. The gospel frees us from the need for people's approval and adoration so that we can confront and anger them because we love them. 
and we want what's best for them. So let me ask you two questions. The first is for us collectively as the body of Christ called Parkwood. It's for us. This is not something for you to go out and complain about and fuss at each other about. Even though I'm gonna ask it as an us, we ultimately gotta bring it down to us as individuals. Here's my question. Are we, that is Parkwood, are we cultivating and capitalizing on Christ-centered relationships for the sake of the gospel? Turn to Ephesians chapter four again. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry and the building up of the body of Christ. So I used to be a smart mouth youth minister. Don't laugh too loud, Marl. I hear you over there. And parents would come to me and say, my kid, you talk to my kid. And I learned to be more gentle, but I still am gonna ask you the same question. Have you? Have you? Don't you think this, parents, that you can ignore your kids, hoping everything's gonna work out for the best, and then when they have problems, drop them off at the professional and they're gonna fix them. Here's what you've gotta do, parents. You have to cultivate and capitalize on a Christ-centered relationship. Growth group leaders, don't call us as pastors and say, I think so-and-so is wandering away from Jesus. Will you talk to him? Have you? Member of a growth group, go to your growth group leader. I think so-and-so is probably wandering away from Jesus. I think you need to talk to him. Have you? Here's how this works. Do you see it? And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for what? The work. Oh, that's a good word. To equip the saints for ministry. Now that sounds gushy and sweet. I love the fact the Bible just put the word in there. To equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood. Question, are we there? No, okay, we got something else to do. So that, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and, and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human crafty, cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. So look up here. Here's how we keep Galatia from happening at Parkwood. You... You, individually, have got to cultivate and capitalize on Christ-centered relationships, and you, together, have got to do verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, whom the whole body joined and held together to every joint to which is equipped, when each part is working properly. When we're all involved in cultivating, capitalizing on Christ-centered relationships, it makes the body to grow so that it builds itself up in love. So my answer question, why do I need to be a member of a church? Because when you become a member of a church here, this is what it means. When you become a member of Parkwood, you're saying to the rest of us, I understand that I am responsible to cultivate and capitalize on Christ-centered relationships among the body of Christ. I'm joining you in what God has told his church to do. I'm a part. Let's get more personal now. 
Am I discipling, praying for, and anguishing over others for the sake of the gospel? My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So you build in relationships for the purpose of seeing disciples made. This is the command of Jesus, friend. This is not the preacher trying to shame you. Jesus said, make disciples. Now here's what I wish. You read some of these church growth books, you listen to some of these pastors and read their books and you, you think this, that, that at their church, they take a person, they drop them in a disciple-making machine and go, whoop, and they turn the handle and poop, out pops these godly people who follow Jesus and win everybody to Christ and teach growth groups and just, man, whoo, look at these people. We look at that and say, why didn't that happen in here? Well, it didn't happen in there. There's a lot being sold today in Christendom with Twitter and Facebook and everything else. The work of ministry has never changed. It's hard work. You know why? Because we be hard people. We. We're a mess. And I'm saying to you vulnerably, honestly, and openly, I need you. And whether you want to admit it or not, you need me. And you need the person sitting next to you and in front of you and behind you. You say, well, I don't really like Parkwood. You know, it's kind of big. I don't know anybody here. Ditto. So we've thought through, how can we be a church with this many people coming? And we've broken it down to what we call growth groups. We have growth groups so that we can capitalize on and cultivate Christ-centered relationships. So that discipleship can happen with each other. So that prayer can happen with each other. And so, when someone wanders away, that there are a group of people anguishing over souls. Here's what scares me right now while I'm preaching. Sitting in this room, probably on a back row as far away as you can get from me, and not all of you on the back row am I talking to you. <laughs> it's probably a person that somebody's been anguishing over years. They're in this room. And you want to get right with God, and, and you're doing the right thing by being here and hearing the truth. But I'm going to tell you something you're never going to fully walk with Jesus until you build relationships with other Christians. God designed it this way. He refers to himself as father. And you are my sons and daughters. That means we're a family. Now my family puts the fun in dysfunctional. How about yours? We're a big dysfunctional mess, brothers and sisters. But we need each other. You gotta be careful how I use this illustration. But before I came in this room, a brother in Christ came up to me concerning a conversation that he had had this week with somebody from this church. And he was anguished. I said, well, you're about to get a sermon on what to do. Deeply 
So here's how we're gonna conclude today. Is there somebody in your life you're anguished over? For me, there's two people. There's more than that, but there are two people just If I got the call today that they had died, I don't believe they'd be with Jesus. Every evidence of what they say and how they live is contrary to the gospel, all of it. I have talked to them rightly and wrongly, but I'm in anguish. So is there somebody in your life, either through this church or in your life that you're in anguish over? Before you speak to them, pray for them. Pray for yourself. So here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. This is different. We don't do things like this very often. But if you've got somebody you're anguished over, we're not gonna sing, we're not gonna stand up, okay? If you got somebody you're in anguish over, I'm just gonna ask you to get up out of your seat right now and come join others here in the front and we're gonna pray. We're gonna plead together. Come on. If you got somebody you're anguished over, we're gonna plead for them right now. This is gonna take a few minutes, that's fine. If you're comfortable kneeling, kneel. If you'd rather stand, stand. You can certainly pray right there where you are. That's fine. Now, some of us get uncomfortable by this. God gave us hands for a reason, to touch. So I would think if somebody is up here, they're in anguish, so they need to be touched right now. So will you just reach out and touch each other? We are the hands and feet of Jesus here. Let's pray. God represented here are men and women who are pleading for their husband or wife. There are men and women here who are pleading for their mother or father, for their blood brother or sister, for their children. There are men and women who have gathered here are pleading for folks who claim to be followers of Christ who are members of this church. There are people here pleading for co-workers who grew up in church but deny Christ and neighbors who are in the same boat. God, we, are, we, have, we have sought to share with them and we confess before you that many of us have done wrong. We have been mean. We've been hateful. In the midst of our despair, we treated them in an ungodly way. Oh God, will you forgive us and show us how to walk in the path of righteousness for your name's sake to treat them rightly going forward? But God, we are here to plead for their soul. Oh God, they've heard the truth. They know the truth, just like the Galatians knew the truth, but they're believing a lie. Oh God, open their eyes today. May they see the truth, the light of the gospel of Christ, and may they repent and turn to you today. And God, if you will not use us, will you send someone? As I heard a testimony last week of a young college student who was sitting on his front porch and a homeless man showed up and told him the truth. In the middle of the night, God 
do what you need to do to win them to you. Oh God, save their souls and give us hope in the meantime that we would trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.